Welcome everyone, my name is Phil and I'm one of the pastors here and I have the privilege of preaching this morning. Haven't been here and haven't preached in a number of weeks and so it's kind of, my wife told me it's like riding a bike, you'll get, you'll get back in the, in the swing of things. But I'll tell you what, it's been a struggle all day trying to figure out the mechanics of how everything works. And so uh, be gracious to me and forgiving and patient and all that kind of stuff and, and uh, it'll be really good. When you came in, you uh, received a bulletin and in that bulletin is a whole host of uh, content and, and events and information about stuff that's going on at the church. I really, really encourage you to spend some time looking through that and seeing what's going on here at the church. We have a website as well, full of information. Should you see anything that kind of captures your attention and you want more information, we do have a website that can help you. And um, I do want to make sure that you understand or at least are aware of, we put this on social media, but it's something that we're uh, going to start promoting more heavily over the next couple weeks is we're actually hosting a conference uh, at the end of the month, it's August 24th, 25th. It's a Friday night and a Saturday, and it's an encourage, encouragement to anyone in our church who is a leader. Whether you're a leader in our church, leader in your home, leader at the workplace, we're, we are hosting this conference where we're going to talk about leadership and discipleship. And we really want all of our leaders who are serving uh, in and through the church, whether you're a small group leader of some kind with adults at your home during the week or with students um, here on Wednesday and Thursday night in our student ministries or a small group leader for our children in the NPR uh, during the services, or you're leading in the parking lot, you're leading in your neighborhood and hosting barbecues or whatever you're doing. If you're a leader in some capacity, we're encouraging you to come to this conference. It's free of charge. It's a Friday night where we spend a couple hours together talking about theory and theology and then and on Saturday, we're going to uh, get together in the morning and spend the whole morning together talking about how do we put, um, really, how do we put this into practice? And so I want to encourage you to come to that. Like I said, it's free. And one of my slogans in life is, if it's free, it's for me. And so I want to encourage you to come and uh, participate in that. It'll be a good, a good opportunity for, uh, for you all. And you also you probably are aware of this, but you don't get this when you come in. Here's a sermon outline. And also in the back, there's reflection questions. And I highly, highly encourage you to either pick this up or also to go to our website and see um, the Sunday, Sunday morning uh, material that's handed out. And, and this is there for you. But these reflection questions are, are really designed for you to interact with what's being talked about today. And so I highly, highly encourage you to grab that and to talk about the sermon uh, when you go and eat lunch or when you're driving home or uh, later tonight um, before you watch 60 Minutes or whatever you do. Um, so I just highly encourage you to, to do that. We're in a series called Devoted, and uh, it's about the pairing of the gospel with good works. And so if you have a Bible, we'll be in Titus chapter 2 this morning, Titus chapter 2. I love this series, and I love the series we did previous, which is First Timothy. I love it because it reminds us that we as Christians are not called to merely believe something, nor are we called to merely behave a certain way, but instead we are called to wed those two things, that we are to believe a certain doctrine, healthy, sound doctrine, but we're also to behave in a certain way that brings glory to God and the good of our neighbor. And so we're always to be living in, uh, in conformity of those two things together. And that's what this series is really about, the gospel and good works. How do these two things come together? You know, um, like I said, I haven't been here for a while because our family was traveling. We went to the East Coast for a couple weeks at the beginning of the month. My son played in a baseball tournament in Cooperstown, New York, and we went to the Hall of Fame and all that kind of stuff. But then our family went to New England, and so we did all the things we're told to do. So we were good West Coasters on the East Coast. We went to Boston. We did the Freedom Trail. We uh, cruised through Providence, Rhode Island, and Connecticut, and we went to uh, Mystic, where you got to see, you know, the movie Mystic 
Pizza or whatever it was called, the Mystic River or whatever. We got to see all that. And then we went to New York City and we did some of the things there. And we went to Philadelphia. So we did all this stuff. What was really neat, though, was my kid's first plane ride. And uh, as you know, um, anytime you're with somebody who's flying for the first time, it can be a little bit nerve-wracking. And uh, so my kids were asking us the question, like, what's it going to be like? And I was asking, are you nervous? And so they were pretty good. Um, but the one thing you know, if you've ever been with somebody who's never flown before and it's their first time, there's always two things that are etched in their mind and they're something that they will remember forever about flying. Two things, not security. It's not the peanuts. It's not the ginger ale. It's the takeoff and the landing. And for us, it was an adventure. Uh, my son has never been on an airplane where we take, take off. And so he's sitting there and here we go. We're going up there and you can, I look over and you can see him just getting into his seat as we're taking off. And I look at him and smile and he's kind of like big eyes. Like, is this supposed to happen? Yeah, this is great, isn't it? And uh, so you could tell he was a little bit nervous. But then when we landed in Newark, New Jersey, what was interesting is they had crosswinds. And so we came in sideways where you're, you kind of look out there and you're thinking, well, the road is going this way, but our, our plane is coming in this way. And so it's unsettling. And so when we hit the runway, we were bouncing and hopping and jarring back and forth. And you know, I played it off like I was cool. And I was like, yeah, my son was grabbing his chair. But me, I was standing there like, duh. <laughs> so... What's really funny is when, uh, when we asked, when people were asking, some of the players on the baseball team were asking, how was the flight and everything? You know what all the kids talked about? The takeoff and the landing. Because it's like the bookends of your adventure, right? It's the most adventurous time. You know, in, a, in life, there are so many examples where we remember the bookends, but we kind of are murky about the details that go in between it. And what I mean is, um, I remember when I got my acceptance letter to college, and I also remember very clearly when I graduated the cap and gown and everything. It's just the, you know, all the time in between that. I don't remember everything we learned in our classes. I don't remember every conversation that we had or every meal I had. It kind of whatever. But I certainly remember getting in and getting out. And uh, that was the, the bookends. And uh, I also know the, um, of a gentleman who shared with me that he had one and only job for one and only company. And he remembers the handshake when he got hired and he remembered the handshake when he retired. And I thought, man, that's cool. Um, many of us won't do that, especially millennials. Um, they will have 37 jobs by the time they retire, something like that. Um, the other thing I was thinking about is human history. Sometimes when we're sitting in history and we're learning about history and, and all that kind of stuff, we learn about the rise and the fall of empires and nations and people groups. But a lot of the detail in between, I, uh, how did it come to be and how did it fall apart? Um, another one is this, is uh, I have an interest in um, American history, especially like World War II stuff. And so when we think about World War II, we think of basically two things most of the time. Pearl Harbor and D-Day, the beginning of the end. And so we see it in life. Most of the things we remember are the bookends, the beginning and the end. And that's what Paul's going to talk about in, in Titus chapter 2, about the Christian life having bookends. It has one, the first coming of Jesus, which he's going to call the grace of God appearing. But then there's the second component, the bookend, the finished side of it, which is the second coming, often called the second advent, and what Paul is going to call the appearing of God's glory. And so the bookends of the Christian life is the grace of God and the glory of God. And everything in between is what we're doing right now. And so we live in the midst of or in between the grace of God and the glory of God appearing. That's where we're at. And that's what Paul is going to talk about. 
And we also are sharing communion. And it's important to understand that communion reminds us that we live between grace and glory. It's this truth, the fact that we live between grace and glory, those bookends, it's that truth which is the foundation for all the good works we do. Every good work that we ever endeavor to do as Christians is founded upon the truth that we live between grace and glory. And so we're going to see that today in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. So let's pray together. Father, I pray that you teach us. I pray that you show us through your word what it is we're to believe. And I pray, God, that you would work in our lives to see and behold the beauty and the wonder of what you've accomplished on our behalf. And God, that you would also compel us with your love to be the kind of people you envision us being. So God, would you teach us, grant us the spirit, giving us the mind of Christ and giving us the kind of heart that we need to comprehend and believe and understand what we're gonna be talking about. So do these things for us, we pray, for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, in order to really grasp what we're doing here, we have to remember some of the things that Larry preached on over the last couple weeks. In the first week uh, that we went through this series, he talked about the fact that our lives cannot be disconnected regarding what we believe and how we live. He actually highlighted the fact that what we believe impacts how we live, and the two together is what our devotion to God is. So if you want to know how devoted to God you are, you simply need to look at how you're living and what you believe and see how those two things go together. We actually see in Titus 1.1, which is um, how Paul puts it, these two things merging together. He says, he's a servant of God, an apostle of Christ Jesus for the sake of Uh, the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. And notice this, he says, which accords with godliness. So in Paul's mind, there's a connection between what you know and believe, which should accord with godliness, how you behave. So in his mind, he's saying, look, I'm here for the purpose of helping people believe and know the right things. But everything that they believe and know is always in conjunction with or according to or in partnership with godliness. They're inseparable. You can't just focus on one or the other. It's got to be both. And we see a warning in Titus chapter 1, verse 15 and 16, where Paul writes, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. You notice that? So outwardly with their mouths, they're like, I know God. But the way in which they live gives every indication that they don't know God. They deny God. That's why Jesus said, why in the world are you calling me Lord, Lord, and not doing what I say? Who are you fooling? Are you kidding me? No, no, no. The person who truly knows God is the person who lives godly. Because those two things go together. But it's not only that good behavior or godliness is in accordance with what we believe, but what we believe is in accordance with what, how we live. Like it works both ways. This is what Paul said in Titus 2.1. But as for you, Titus, Paul writes, teach what accords with sound doctrine. So at one point, Paul says, I'm going to teach you the doctrine, and then you need to live accordingly. And then he says, I'm going to teach you behavior. I'm going to teach you godliness, and you need to believe accordingly. And you notice what he's doing. He's wedding what we believe and how we live together. That's all what Christianity is, taking what we believe and wedding it together with how we live. 
Now, I know many Christians are accused of not living as good as they should. And as we as Christians should reply, naturally, duh. Because we're a work in progress. And the work God is doing is not done yet. So all of our lives is about trying as best we know how with whatever means God has granted us to get what we believe and how we behave together, to wed those two together. And Larry also mentioned that our devotion to God is rooted in our identity and our purpose. You got to know who you are and you got to know why God plant, uh, placed you on planet Earth. There's a lot of people who don't know their identity and don't know their purpose and so they're living their life aimlessly. And in some ways there's a lot of dissatisfaction in life. And so Paul wrote that he is a servant of God. That's his identity. He's an apostle, means a, a sent one from God. And he's here for the sake of the faith of God's elect. That's his purpose. I'm here to minister to people that they may grow in their faith and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ in accordance with godliness. And so Larry mentioned our devotion to God is, is deeply rooted in who we understand ourselves to be and what our purpose is. And we as Christians understand we are children of God. Not only that, but we are also called to be ambassadors and witnesses and that's our purpose but one of the questions is why why should we study theology why should we behave a certain way why should we pursue godliness why should we pursue uh, sound doctrine now there's really two answers to that and most of the time we we see these and we tend uh, to lean one way or the other there's two answers the first one is this the reason why we try to behave as best we can and live in godliness is because God said so. Now that sounds noble and maybe dignifying. Unfortunately, it's just difficult and actually it creates some real deep complications. Here's what I mean. If you believe that God wants you to believe a certain thing and live a certain way and the only rationale is because I said so, you begin to think of the good Christian life that God has called you to and called you to live as a law. Laws are there to tell you what you ought to do and threaten you if you break it. And so many Christians have in their minds, I ought to behave this way, I ought to believe this way or else he's going to get me. And that's law. So there's another answer to the question why we should believe and behave a certain way. It's not law. It's called grace. And the answer to that is, well, the reason why I believe this and the reason why I live this way is because of all that God has done for me when I didn't deserve it. Do you notice the difference? One is an emphasis of what you must do for God the other one is an emphasis of all that God has done for you. And that is a world of difference. One will crush your soul and spirit, and the other one will liberate you. That's all. So this is significant. That's why Paul keeps emphasizing this. This is the difference between freedom and slavery, if you get this right. So here's how Paul put it, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. I'm going to stop there. You notice what Paul does with the first word. In Greek, it's the conjunction for, gar, or it could also be translated because. 
And the idea between, uh, with that conjunction is it's a, a conjunction that signifies causation. And what it means is I'm going to pay, I want you uh, to pay attention to this effect, okay, the, the outcome. I want you, and then I want to call to your attention why that outcome is the way it is. Here's the cause. It's because this. So when Paul goes through in Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and lays out what the Christian life is supposed to be like, the good life, he lays it all out there, and then he uses the, the, the word gar in Greek, or because. In other words, that's the effect. That's what we're trying to accomplish with our life, verses 1 through 10. And the reason why, or the cause of this kind of life, is because this, the grace of God has appeared. Do you notice that? The grace of God is the foundation of all of our life. It is the motivator. It is what enables. It is what empowers obedience, right living, right thinking, good doctrine. It's grace. Now, what's really important about this is we have to ask ourselves the question, what in the world is grace? Because we typically think of grace as like a, uh, a thing that we experience, not a thing that we can necessarily see. So when he says the grace of God has appeared, how is that possible? Grace is not something you can measure or taste or see. What color is grace? How much does it weigh? So what Paul is talking about is the grace of God has appeared. There's been a visible manifestation of God's grace somehow. And then we recall what John chapter 1 says, where Jesus is described as the grace and truth, the fullness of God's grace and truth has come. And so when we put these two things together, we recognize, oh, the reason why we live the way we live and believe what we believe is because Jesus has come in his first coming, full of grace and full of truth. And it says he's bringing salvation for all people. What's amazing is verses 1 through 10 highlights five different categories of people. Older men, be self-controlled. Younger men, you need to be self-controlled. Older women, train younger women. Younger women, be respectful. And then he goes into bond servants or slaves. Five different people groups. And he says, this is how you should live. Because the grace of God has appeared. What Paul is saying is not that everyone gets saved. But that God has come to save all kinds of people. Here's how Tim Chester, who's an author and pastor in the UK, here's how he put it. He said, why should older men be temperate or self-controlled? It's so they can commend the gospel to other older men. Because Christ came to save old people. <laughs> all right. Why should older women be reverent? It's so they commend the gospel to other women. Because Christ came to save women. And why should younger women love their husbands and children? So they commend the gospel to them because Christ came to save husbands and children. And why should young men be self-controlled? It's so they commend the gospel to other young men because Christ came to save young, young men. And why should slaves be subject to their masters? So they commend the gospel to their masters because Christ came to save masters. And what that teaches us is, is the grace of God is made available to all people and there are no prerequisites to the reception of God's grace. 
You don't have to be at a certain level of education. You don't have to be certain wealth or privilege. You don't have to socioeconomically be high class, middle class, or any class. You don't have to be black or white. It doesn't matter what your skin color is. It doesn't matter what your background is or what language you speak. All are offered grace. Now, what's amazing about that is what the, the whole rationale is this. The whole reason we should live this way, the grace of God has appeared, and the grace of God is how God is ransoming people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and people group to himself. The grace of God is transnational. It's, it, it's just so significant that how we live is a commendation, or in other words, a recommendation for the beauty and the truth of the gospel. Do you get that? You know, when we buy stuff online, you usually look at, you know, like, oh, what are the reviews? And then you see, like, is this recommended? Do they, do they, would this work for my situation? We do recognize that the way in which we live is constantly recommending the beauty of Christ. This is how beautiful he is. And that's what Paul's trying to get across. The grace of God has appeared. It's the grace for all people, all kinds of people, regardless of what your background is or what you have done or haven't done. God's grace is here for you, and he wants you. And then grace is not only as beautiful as that is, it not only saves, but it also trains. Look at this in verse 12. The grace of God has appeared, and it trains us to do two things, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and also to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. You notice the two things? It teaches us to say no, but it also teaches us to say yes. No to the bad, yes to the good. Or in other words, no to being ungodly, yes to being godly. And that's a significant thing that grace teaches us. Now, what does that look like? It looks like this. We have to realize that when we renounce ungodliness, it's basically saying no to being the opposite of God. And grace teaches us how to say no to being the opposite of God. An example would be this. If you come to realize through meditating, thinking, and pondering about the good news of Jesus Christ, that God sent his one and only son to rescue you in the midst of your sin through his death and resurrection, that if you will simply believe that he is sufficient and you don't have what it takes, but he does, you ponder that and you start to realize, oh my goodness, I've been forgiven of so much. Then when your neighbor, your family member does something stupid and you're, you're posed with this dilemma of should I or should I not forgive them, the person who has pondered the deep and profound beauty of the grace of God will answer always, yes, I should forgive them because I have been forgiven of so much. Remember what Jesus says? Forgive as you've been forgiven. The person who ponders grace and ponders the gospel and understands, oh my goodness, I don't deserve anything. But God in his lavish mercy and grace just gave me all that I needed. That's amazing. So that when you encounter somebody who has needs, whether they are worldly needs or spiritual needs here in this world, you don't look at them and close your heart against them because you recall the gospel and the radical generosity of God towards you. And then you turn your heart, not hard, but soft. And you go, just as God has met my needs, I'm going to meet yours. You see, if you ponder the grace of God 
and you think about the deep and profound beauty of God in the gospel, it impacts the way you live. And you will say no to being the opposite of God. And you will say yes to godliness. So in other words, being like God. And it all depends on, are you thinking about the gospel? You see, typically in the church, we tend to think of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, as being strictly for people to take them from unbelief to belief. And then once they come to belief, then we put the gospel on the shelf, close the pantry. We're done. But we don't recognize that Romans chapter 1 actually says this, that Paul was coming to the church in Rome because he heard of their world-famous faith in Jesus. He was blown away by what they knew and how they believed and how they lived, just floored. And then five verses later, he says this, I'm eager to come to you that I may share the gospel with you as well. Wait, what? They have world-famous faith and you're eager to share the gospel with them? They already know the gospel. Here's the beauty of what Paul's doing. The gospel is not just for how you get to heaven. The gospel is the reminder of God's goodness towards you in the midst of your sin, the grace that he lavishes upon you today. Laws don't provide you with what you need to obey the law. However, the gospel is the power to not only command you to live a certain way, but it also supplies you with what you need to obey. That's the beauty of grace. It teaches us to say no to some things. It teaches us to say yes to others. And I want you to see the beauty of that. If all we ever do is focus on what the good life is like in verses 1 through 10, you know, be forgiving, be self-controlled, be this, and all we ever do is focus on that, and all we ever do is reiterate the commands to other people, you better be like this or you need to do this, it can eventually crush your soul. How? Like this. If you know you're commanded to be self-controlled and you lose self-control, what do you do? Generally, you go to somebody and you go, man, I need to confess to you, man, I totally lost control with my kids. I became impatient. I lost it with my wife. I like lost it on whoever. Man, I just, man, it's horrible. And that person looks at you and says, well, you know you need to be self-controlled. Yeah, that's why I'm here. I'm telling you that I didn't do what I should have done. Okay. So what do you think I should do? And the person tells you, you just got to try harder. Like you just got to be better at trying harder, at being self-controlled. You need to recognize your inner fortitude. You need to recognize that you possess all you need to do it. You can do it. So go do it. They give you a little pat on the back. So you go out and do it. I'm going to try harder. And you try hard. But a week later, you're back with your friend in a coffee shop going, well, that didn't work. <laughs> See, here's the thing, brothers and sisters. It's not so much that our conscience is plagued with the fact that we can't meet God's standards. It's plagued by the fact that you and I can't even meet our own standards. Do you get that? So let's just take God's standards out of the equation. Let me just ask you, are you living as good as you know you should? Oh, oh. So what's the recommendation? Duh, try harder. You notice how crushing that can be? 
I've already done that. It doesn't work. So then you give the Christian a try harder slogan, which is this. You just got to read your Bible more and pray more. That'll work. Okay, I'll do that. And then four days later, what? Well, I failed again. So what do you do? Do you keep trying harder and harder and harder? No. Eventually, you end up feeling condemned and guilty and filled with shame. But we're told in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, for whoever is in Christ Jesus, whoever that may be, there is now no condemnation for those folks. So how is it that I feel condemned all day long and yet I'm told I'm not condemned? You been there? So what's the solution? The solution is not more law. The solution is grace. Here's how Tim Chester puts it. Remember him, the the pastor and author from the UK? He says this. There will be times when you need to tell people what a good life looks like. Self-control, for instance. But if you want people to actually live a good life, then do not emphasize the good that they must do for God. Instead, we must emphasize the good that God has done for them. Do you get that? You see, as we ponder and think about the depths and the beauty of God's grace, that in the midst of our rebellion and sin and hatred towards him, where we wanted all the gifts of God with, with, without God himself, like a spoiled brat on Christmas Day that only wants the presents and wants to get the parents out of the room. In the midst of that, God said, I'm going to give you my most precious, treasured possession. I'm giving you my son. Changes the way you live. You recognize, oh my goodness, The way in which I live is a response to the radical generosity of God in providing for me what I needed most desperately. So the answer to how can I be more self-controlled is not try harder. The answer to how do I be more self-controlled is to ponder the preciousness of the gospel of God's grace. And as you ponder the gospel of God's grace, you will be strengthened by that grace. And that grace that strengthens you in Christ Jesus is the empowering and enabling effect upon your life. That's amazing. The grace of God does that. John Bunyan, you probably know John Bunyan. He wrote Pilgrim's Progress. One of my favorite stanzas and one of his poems is this. It's helped me tremendously over the years. He writes, run, John, run, the law commands but gives neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and grants me wings. Brothers and sisters, you need to realize that the law commands you to be obedient, but it supplies you with nothing where the gospel commands you to be obedient and yet grants you all that you need to be obedient. That is good news. Communion reminds us that we live between grace and glory. The grace of God has appeared, teaching us to say no to some things, yes to others, empowering, enabling us. It really is the foundation for all of our good works. And it says in the present age, verse 12, which means right now. It's not just the good news of how to get to heaven. It's the good news of how you live the life that God demands and commands, which is pleasing to him and glorifying to him and also precious And joyful to us. That life is one of waiting. Verse 13. We are waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. 
Our life today is a life of waiting. As Christians, we are waiting for the glory of God to appear. And that is our blessed hope. Now, this sounds horrible to us as Americans because we hate waiting. You know what I'm talking about. Last time you went to a restaurant, how long is the wait? Okay, let's go. When you go to a coffee shop, when you go to um, anywhere, like you're going, you know, waiting for something and you see a long line, what do you do? Just keep driving. Let's go somewhere else. I'm not waiting in that line. Or if you happen to be in a line that you know is worth waiting for because of the whatever you're going to purchase or whatever, what do you do when you're waiting in line? You don't just sit there and wait and observe and watch and listen and talk to people. What do you do? You pull out your phone because you're not going to be caught doing nothing. I'm not waiting here. I just got to pull my phone out and do stuff. I feel like every time I'm in line at a coffee shop, I feel like looking when somebody's on their phone, I was like, do you have to do that right now? Just curious, like curious. Because I bet you anything, people are, no, 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 they're just addicted to their phone and so they just got to pull it out because they're idle. I got to do something. Well, what is the something you got to do? I don't know, just something. Just not stand here. So when the Bible says, wait, we go, no, no, now. Because we live in an instant gratification society, do we not? I want what is easy, what is fastest. If I have to cook it on the stovetop or I got a microwave, it guess what I'm doing? Microwave. <laughs> That's not how it works with the Christian life. We wait patiently. Now, the degree that you are willing to wait patiently, it, it really is rooted in what it is you're waiting for. Nobody will patiently wait to be smacked in the face. But you will patiently wait for something that you think is valuable that you're going to receive for free. You wait for that. So what is it that we're waiting for as Christians? Because this present age is marked with waiting. He says we're waiting for our blessed hope. The word blessed here can also be translated as happy. We as Christians are waiting for our happy hope. The word hope means a confident expectation of something to come in the future. So as we think about the future, we are happy. Does that describe you? Oftentimes it doesn't describe us, not because there's nothing to be happy about. It's just that we've forgotten what to be happy about. We're happy for vacations, but then they come and go. We're happy for promotions, but then now you actually have to work. We're happy when our kids know how to tie their shoes, but then they come in dragging mud <laughs> into the house. We as Christians can never be people who are so nearsighted that we have forgotten our hope. But instead, as we ponder the hope that is laid out before us, we should respond the way we ought to, which is we should be happy. Now, what is there to be happy about? I'm glad you asked. I had nine things to be happy about, but as you can see, we don't have enough time to do all nine. We have to do three. So I picked the three best that I could think of. Here are three reasons to be happy in our hope as Christians of the appearing of the glory of God. Firstly, when Christ appears, and by the way, I know that he's talking about the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The coming of glory is another way of saying the coming of Jesus. He's coming back. We know he's coming back because the dude was dead and then he rose from the dead. <laughs> he's coming back. But when he does, what's going to happen? <laughs> happy, happy. Verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, 
that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it does not know him, beloved. We are God's children now. Notice the identity stuff here. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who hopes like this, he will purify himself as he is pure. Now, that may not mean much to you, but remember the whole standard thing? We don't even meet our own standard. There's coming a a day, brothers and sisters, where we will no longer look introspectively and we will say, man, look at all the ways I, I come up short. I am not as patient as I should be. I'm not as loving as I should be. I'm not as forgiving as I should be. And all of that wells up into all kinds of conviction and guilt and if that's undealt with and it results in shame and pretty soon all of that guilt shame and conviction condemns us crushes us and we feel like we can't move or do anything you've been there and as we think about that we're realizing this promise is this there's coming a day brothers and sisters when Jesus will come and beholding his return we will be transformed no longer being the failures that we know we are but we will be transformed into the image of him who has never failed and the righteousness we know we lack we will be given in fullness and finality we will be made perfect So if anyone ever says, Phil, you're a Christian, you, you fail all the time, I go, I know, but there's coming a day where I won't anymore. And in that day, there's an overwhelming sense of happiness. For in that day, I will be what I always wanted to be, and I knew God was going to make me. I will be like Jesus. Now, brothers and sisters, if you know Jesus, you know that he is the exact kind of best friend, best spouse, best whatever that you've always dreamed of. We're all going to be like that as Christians. I can't wait for that day. The second happy thing is when Christ appears, we shall receive our reward. The apostle Peter says, when the chief shepherd appears, we will receive the unfading crown of glory. The apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 4 that there's laid up for, for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And he says in Colossians 3, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Brothers and sisters, there's coming a day when our reward will be granted to us. The reward is a crown of glory, a crown of righteousness, where we will see him as he is. This doesn't mean that if we're just going to get rich and we're sitting on thrones and... What it means is we're going to be given a crown of righteousness, a crown of glory, and we will receive all that God has promised me. I know that sounds kind of bizarre, but what Paul has in mind is this. What you're going to receive is the unhindered, unfiltered access to God's glory. God's glory is a a difficult thing for us as Christians to understand. We throw it around all the time and sometimes use words that are overused or sometimes not understood. The glory of God is the visible value of all that God is. There's coming a day where we will be free of sin and we will be able to behold the glory of God and see how valuable he truly is. That is our reward. We will see him. Whereas the psalmist put it in Psalm 1611, in your presence is the fullness of joy and at your right hand, which is where Jesus is, are pleasures forevermore. 
You see, there's coming a day when we will have access to the presence of God and in the presence of God, we will experience the fullness of joy. Brothers and sisters, you know what that's like. You know that your heart is longing and aching for a satisfaction that extends well beyond this world. You put your hope in a vacation and you get back and the only thing you can think of is when's the next one? You put your hope in a promotion and as soon as you get it, you're wondering, when is my vacation coming? You put your hope in your kids behaving and getting into college and then what? You see, we have unmet desires. And as C.S. Lewis says, if I find a desire within myself that nothing in this world can satisfy, it must mean I'm meant for another world. You see, brothers and sisters, there is a joy, an infinite joy, a full satisfaction and the fullness of pleasures forevermore that is offered everybody in the presence of God. And when Jesus returns, guess what? That's what we get. Fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. One of my favorite things, have you ever seen Peter Pan with, uh, uh, oh man, what is that guy's name? Robin Williams? There's a little, the lost boys, they're looking at him, he's old. And he's like, oh, and they're like, they're not Peter Pan, you're old. And one of the lost boys comes to Robin Williams' character, Peter Pan, and begins to squeeze on his face and push away the wrinkles. And that's not it. And then he takes the corners of his mouth with his thumbs. One of these little lost boys, an eight-year-old little boy, and he takes this mouth, which is kind of frowning, and he lifts it. And the boy steps back and says, there you are, Peter. Brothers and sisters, there's coming a day where we're gonna see Jesus. And, and we've seen glimpses of him, but then all of a sudden, we'll see him as he is and we'll go, oh, there's what my heart has always wanted. There you are. I don't know about you, brothers and sisters, but that makes me happy. Not only that, but that's, that's just two. <laughs> Here's another one. When Christ appears, we will be transformed. Philippians 3, 20 and 21, but our citizenship is in heaven, Paul writes, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And listen, listen to what he's gonna do. He's gonna transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Brothers and sisters, when Jesus appears, this lowly, decaying, decrepit body is getting exalted. And we will have bodies no longer plagued with sin, no longer plagued with disease, no longer is falling apart in all kinds of ways you never imagined. But instead, we are receiving a glorious, transformed body. Now, I don't know about you, but that is incredibly awesome. And one of the promises is in Revelation 21 that when Jesus returns, that he will wipe away every tear. And brother and sister, I don't know about you, but... My grandfather died at 79 years old from bone cancer and we shed tears. But we understand that the hope of a Christian, the happy hope is this, though my body wastes away, I'm getting a new one. And the people who I love and the people who I'm praying for who are experiencing the devastating effects of things like cancer and their body is wasting away, we have to encourage them with the happy hope that as much as this body is wasting away, God has promised you, though you die, yet you shall live. Brothers and sisters, this is amazing. We will be radically transformed when Jesus returns. 
free of grief, free of suffering, free of pain, free of disease, free of death. Every tear is going to be wiped dry in the presence of Jesus, our greatest joy. It makes me realize this world ain't my home. I'm destined for more. And in fact, God has promised me not only do, do you have a desire for more, but your desire is going to be satisfied. And it makes me realize that this world's not my home. But God, I want to go home. I'm, like, I'm kind of homesick. It wears on me. I have to be honest. It wears on me to have people say bad and negative things about you time and time again. Sometimes you just want to stop and go, God, I just, want, I, I just want to go home. I won't be slandered anymore when I'm home with you. I want to go home. The beautiful thing is, it's not just that we get to go home. It's that as we wait for our home, Jesus is slowly but surely bringing home to us. Brothers and sisters, that's why we gather as a church. We are brothers and sisters. This is a small glimpse of home. Let's be good to each other, shall we? We're in this together. Communion reminds us of that, guys. We live between grace and glory. And in the meantime, we patiently wait for the happy hope of all that God has promised us. That affects the way we live. And lastly this, I'm gonna cruise through this with four Ps. For what communion reminds us that Jesus gives himself for us. Look at this in verse 14. That Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The beauty, the greatness of Jesus is that he has given himself for us. He hasn't given himself to us but for us. Which means there's been an exchange I want your sin, and I'm going to give you my righteousness. The new creation in 2 Peter 3 is said to be the home of righteousness, and that's what we wait for. There's four things that Jesus did, giving of himself for us, the four Ps. Firstly, to purchase us. Paul writes, he gave himself for us to redeem us. The word purchase is a transaction, an economic transaction. It's the idea of when someone is purchased out of slavery. You see, by the blood of Jesus, those of us who were enslaved to sin and realized that the redemption that Jesus accomplished through the shed blood of his cross is that he purchased us from slavery and set us free. He did that for you and I. Ephesians 1, 7 says, in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. When we take the cup in our hands and we are looking at that grape juice, symbolic of the blood of Jesus, we have to remember in that moment, it is by the blood of Jesus that I've been purchased from the slavery of sin and been set free. Thank you for your blood. Secondly, it purifies. Jesus gave himself to purify us. Now, it's not just purify in the sense that Outwardly, everything is going to be fixed and we're going to do what we should do outwardly, but there's also an inward purification, and this is what is significant. 
It talks about in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 14, about how Jesus enters the throne room of God, not by the means of blood of goats and heifers like in the Old Testament, but he came into the presence of God with his own blood. And it says in verse 14 that, ask this question, okay, if the blood of goats and bulls was enough to satisfy God's wrath in the Old Testament, can you imagine how much more beautiful the blood of Jesus is than animals? He says, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the, in an etern- through the eternal spirit offer himself un- uh, without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? I don't know if you understand or have grasped the severity and the significance and the weightiness of God's sending his son Jesus to bleed for us. But the blood of Jesus purifies not only our outward conduct, but it purifies the depths of who we are by cleansing our conscience. So brothers and sisters, as the failures in your life begin to add up and you're starting to feel condemned, plead the blood of Jesus. Plead the blood of Jesus. Romans 8 says, if you're ever accused of not being good enough and not being acceptable by God, you know who that comes from? That comes from Satan. Because the shed blood of Jesus has already happened, he has secured for you an eternal redemption. You have been purchased by Jesus. You are his. And if any nonsense about you not being good enough and you not being all this kind of stuff ever gets into your head, you know what you need to do? You need to tell Satan to shut his mouth because the blood of Jesus is sufficient. And then you can be free in your conscience. I don't have to work and be good enough to be accepted by Jesus. In the midst of my weakness and sin, Jesus worked his way towards me. I stand on the finished work of Jesus, not my work. So shut your mouth, Satan. Did you guys get that? Do you see how rich and beautiful communion is? That Jesus purchased us, purifies us so that he can possess us. I am yours and you are mine, Jesus says. The last one is this. He possesses us, purifies us, and purchases us so that we can be passionate about good works. That's what the word zealous means. That we are his own possession who are zealous for good works, who are passionate for good works. Not because by good works are we saved, but because we are saved by grace, we are eager to do the good works which commend the gospel. I want to tell you how great God is. And even if you won't listen to my words, will you at least listen to my life? Let me show you how good God is. Though you don't deserve this handout, I'm giving it to you. Though you don't deserve forgiveness, I'm giving it to you. Though you don't deserve this love, I'm going to love you anyway. This is how good God is. Because what I'm doing to you is what he did to me. That's what we do in communion, brothers and sisters. As a body, as a family, we come to the Lord's table, rehearsing the gospel, reminding ourselves of the truth of God's grace, taking the body of Jesus, represented symbolically through the bread, knowing that the body God came in, he died in, rose in, and it's coming back in a new body. And we're promised the same thing. Taking the cup in our hands, we look at that blood, symbolic of Jesus' blood. You redeemed me, purified me, you possessed me because of this. So God, would you work in us as we share communion together? 
reminding ourselves that we live between the grace and the glory and that this truth is the foundation for all of our good works. So God, as your children, I pray that what would well up inside of us is a deep and profound sense of gratitude for all that you are and all that you've done. And thank you for this bread and this cup. That is a reminder of your grace. So we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.